Welcome to the Brilliant Podcast. Uh, this is going to be episode, I think, 41. Uh, we're, we're actually waiting to put up an episode that's on Antifa. Um, and this episode will be probably just as uh, just as a bit of a, of a spicy tamale. Um, uh, <laughs> it's going to be an interesting episode because uh, we have a couple people here. Do you have a name you want to go by for this? Will's fine. Okay, so we have Will and Bellamy. And uh, uh, Bellamy has, has returned back to the fold. He's been... like to play hot and cold. Yeah, he's, he's been out in the country and, and has come to the big city for uh, the East Bay Anarchist Book Fair that's coming up this weekend. And um, tonight we're going to talk about a project that is a very exciting project. It's sort of uh, fresh out of the LBC uh, laboratory and actually represents a, a new editorial direction for LBC and a new relationship for us um, because it's the first project we've done with this character that uh, internet people would know as Art Cabrera who wrote this excellent and really fascinating article for Ritual Magazine, which seemed to be a project of him and some friends of his. And I tried to get LBC into the Ritual game earlier in the process, but uh, to, to no avail. Anyways, so Art's new project is called Atasa, and we're going to devote this entire episode to talking about Atasa, talking about the political implications of it, talking about some of the articles and the content within Atasa, and hopefully introducing... Uh, North American audience to um, ideas of eco-extremism. So I guess just to start out, what did you all think of Vitasso? And the, uh, both Will and Bellamy have read more of it than I have. I've only read the first quarter. I've read all of it. Um, uh, what, what does it do well? What does it, what's, what does it do less well? Um, it does flare well. It has a lot of panache. Mm -hmm. Um, there are a couple of stronger, more critical pieces. Um, there are a couple weaker critical pieces. And most did, you, did you read the, the paper version of the uh, communiques from individualists tending towards the wild? I've just read the PDF. Yeah, but you've, but you, so you've read them. Mm -hmm. Because the, the point to me would be sort of like that's the only textual representation there's been up till now yeah. of eco-extremist literature and so is this better is this worse what's different well you mean the only textual representation in english right yeah right. They, sure yeah yeah so I, I actually was gonna ask you we got a little bit ahead of the game but uh this is following closely on the heels of abolish work which i think was another book that might be unusual to your audience unusual <laughs> to the people involved in lbc is there some sort of move toward you know, printing things that are more disagreeable or questionable or that sort of thing? Well, I, I wish it were that simple. Um, you know, the thing about our project, right, and, and, you know, we've talked about this quite a few times, but, you know, we've spent five years producing material, and, and I sort of did it as an assertion that there is such a thing as a post-left literature. Yeah. And, um, and while, I, obviously, I think that we've evidence that that's true, uh, on the flip side, it's taken every quarter has become more and more difficult in terms of getting content. Mm. And, um, and so this quarter, one of the things that was coming up, which I think is sort of an interesting phenomenon, is that more people seem to be at the level of producing and doing what it takes to make a journal than of necessarily doing a book. 
So obviously, if you look at our first two years of the five-year LBC um, print a book a month yeah, project, it's almost all books. Right? It's well, it's not just all books, but it's like all like these heavy hitters, right? Mm -hmm. um, queer ultraviolence, Novatory. You know, it's just like book after book that like clearly were years in in, in the making, and and those first two years was just like heavy hitters, mm -hmm. and the last year or two. You know, we've had some strong books, but they're all fairly small. Like mm -hmm. uh, "Blessed Is the Flame," it's a strong book, strong title, but it's very small. It's 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 half the size of Novatory, if not less. And so, um, uh, we knew when we start when we were starting to do, to do journals that one of the goals of doing a journal is to sort of be a place where a stable, where a set of authors can sort of like chew on each other and chew on a context to and feel then, like they get. Whatever they write is going to have a place to go. Yes, and then and then and then eventually build the confidence to do something that's their own. That's right. that's a book. So that was the part part of the purpose of journals. So Atasa came along as as exactly that kind of a project where you can imagine <clears throat> some of the Anglophile authors of Atasa in two or three years will have a book. But it just it just turned out that for this quarter, um, we were we were going to have. At, at different points in the process, we were going to have as many as three or four books and two to four journals. Um, and as it's probably going to turn out, we're going to have two journals and three books mm -hmm. for this quarter. And and it, it, it so so Atasa, um, yeah, I, I guess that's it. I'm not sure, sure I yeah. totally answered the question. But so is, the, is there a feeling, to use a crude analogy, that the well's drying up and you have to drill deeper? You know, five years of a vibrant post-left tendency to me, that's a good run. <laughs> it's but a pretty it's good run. But it's also, I assume there, there's a, a feeling of exhaustion or something when it starts to dry up. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I, I mean, I knew I, I knew five years was sort of as much of my life as I wanted to devote to this. So, mm. so that that was sort of why five years made sense in the in the in the first place. The uh, to, to speak specifically about abolished work, I do want, I do think that post left anarchists could find some places to engage in quote unquote market anarchists. Because, um, because, but, but actually, the more problematic part. If I don't know how much of the that book you've read, the technophilia, yeah, yeah, right. That's the part that's sort of <laughs> that's the part totally that outrageous. I, I just, I, I was reading it, and I came to several in a row that were that way, and then I just put it down. and I haven't picked it up again. Yeah, no, you're right. So that's the thing about that book. I, I, I definitely think that there's a place for engagement with the the market people, um, and and definitely to me, the big open questions are about sort of like what does it mean to be a market person if you're just using the word to instead of human relationships or something <laughs> like i get it um, you know it's a little weird but okay but the t but the technophilia in that book is wild like yeah i mean but bob black really did open that door and and he's you know, tried to backpedal since but in abolish work or uh is that the name of it no the the abolition abolition work. Work. he leaves open the possibility oh it, yeah it's it's even heavier than that as, as yeah. far as i'm concerned mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there's actually, I can't remember which one it is, um, one of his iconic work essays, he sort of, um, he, he sort of leaves it open in this way of, like, let's see who does a better job, the, the pro-tech or the anti-tech people uh, of abolishing work. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. And he says, right now I'm leaning toward the anti-tech, but he doesn't even say, I feel strongly. Right. So. Anyways, back to Atasa. Yeah. Um, so, so, I guess at the, at the, uh, the first thing that, that's worth mentioning is that the introduction to Atasa does a very strong and probably even a bang-up job of making the argument for an eco-extremist position. Sure. It, it goes through and it defines terms. 
and and it's 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 ra it's not like a fist in the air let's let's do it sort of a sort of a thing but it actually like it's a diligent solid introduction to the ideas and and it makes a case yeah yeah and even before that I really <clears throat> appreciate the editorial note at the beginning of the book when they say something like um, I'm just gonna paraphrase it because I, I can't recall it we're neither cheerleading nor um, censuring we're just saying this is something that you have to deal with it's something that's happening and I think they do a very good job between the introduction and then following that John Jacoby's piece where he gives a little bit of the history and you know they're pointing out that this is something that has this tendency that people being active who are aligning themselves with this tendency have been around now for five years if you consider this the stirring up stirrings up in Europe to be part of the tendency then you could say it's spreading if you consider Kaczynski to be um, the sort of um, ancestor of this tendency, which arguably he is, then you could say it's something that's been around for quite a while and mm -hmm. is showing the ability to resurge. And so what I hope this book does is reach some people who are at least, even if they don't like it, even if they hate it, will read it and engage with it honestly and recognize that it's not something that is just, um, you know, government psyops false flag. It's not something that's just a few cranks. It's something that has a lot of adherence and I would like to see more discussion coming out of this that doesn't either look like saying yay or boo, but looks like saying, what does this mean? What does it say about the state of things for radicals that this is something that a lot of people feel like is the best option or even the only option to express their values? For those of you who are not familiar with the history of eco-extremism, it basically began when um, the Unabomber Manifesto, which is also called... Industrial Society in its Future. Uh, when it was translated into Spanish. And so the, the idea that there were a, a set of people with bright eyes who picked up this brand new Spanish translation and then decided to put it into practice is sort of the, the, the spark that, that, that's begun the tendency we're now calling eco-extremism. But let's, let's actually get into at least a political point that maybe you all can reference different articles to talk about, which is, is there a range of ideas that come out of eco-extremism, do you feel, based on Atasa, that ranges between, like, this is not a revolutionary movement, this is just a, a movement of hostility? Like, is there any wiggle room there? Are there other positions taken? Um, yeah, I think there are more positions taken. I think there seems to be a more moderate form of the eco-extremists that are more faithful to Kaczynski's work, mm. or is his theoretical work. Right, that was the whole thing about you are. Yeah. Mm. Um, and and then there's the groups operating under the ITS banner um, that are arguably... Not revolutionary. Yeah, not revolutionary. Yeah, because Kaczynski still uses the revolutionary word a lot, too. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and I think... Um, I think Jacoby does a good job of sketching out that history of, of pointing out that there are these people around the publication Ultima Reducto who are very much saying Kaczynski was right and we just need to perfect what he said. We need to give it philosophical rigor and that what makes sense to do is, um, is still try to sort of build this revolutionary force and then ITS being the first people in Mexico who distanced themselves from that, he makes the point that initially they were saying we're against revolution because, or we're not, we're not advocating for revolution because we think it's impossible or impractical. And then it later turned into a sort of hardening into, 
and we wouldn't like it anyway because it, we don't think it would. It, it's it's completely tied up in modern culture, in humanism, in this idea of uh, humans as as mass, as mass society, and so it's just it could never give us what we want. <laughs> and um, he also talks about this sort of shift from the sort of metaphysical shift from Kaczynski, who of course is uh, very much a scientific materialist, yeah. and. ITS started off that way, even though they were distancing themselves politically, and then they actually ended up rejecting that as as part and parcel of the modern worldview, and turned toward um, an idea of at least partially reclaiming, insofar as it's possible, what they saw as ancestral beliefs. Yeah, that's. Did any of the uh, uh, essays go deeper into that uh, exploration? It, does, it definitely seemed like spirituality was not necessarily the strong part of this. No. Yeah, not. It would be referenced in passing, but it, there was. There's certainly nothing focusing on that. Yeah. yeah, it's definitely the part that's the strangest. Yeah, I think that warrants more exploration. To hopefully they'll they'll go there in issue two. Yeah. Um. Th this issue definitely seems to be more talking about their rejection of morality and their embracing of violence. Yeah. And and giving justification however that's possible for those those parts of the tendency yeah i think there's a lot in here that would shock the well shock even the lbc audience and then i think certainly shock um people in the broader milieu one of which is uh there's some admiration of sort of uh mafioso murderers oh <laughs> in, really yeah. in terms of in the message context yeah. Uh, no, they're they're actually uh, there's one that um, I think you're you're really wading into a quagmire because it's a sort of almost a, a, something approaching a how-to at the end, and there's some referencing of you know how great this uh, mafioso killer was as far as his track record and sort of the tactics he used to evade the law for so long. Wow. Yeah. And to what end is the which which article is that? That one. Yeah, surviving. surviving civilization lessons from the double lives of eco extremists. Huh. Uh, just as far as keeping a low profile, look very normal, change your clothing all the time, um, learn uh, makeup and prosthetics so that you can make yourself wow. appear elderly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. It straight up says to like you know pretend to be as normal as possible in your life. Mm -hmm. Like keep people around you. Lie to everyone. Mm -hmm. Basically, lie to everyone. Keep people around you. That yeah. I heard it described as a very Nietzschean, Nietzschean-esque. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. Huh. Yeah, and even um, adopt an accent when you're talking to most people. And, uh, and this is a Spanish translation. This is from the magazine yes. Recreation. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh -huh. and um, always to everyone who knows you, espouse a strong moral character mm -hmm. <laughs> and love for soccer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it also says to emphasizes uh, to avoid alcohol and tobacco and to exercise often. Yeah. Um, being physically fit is very is given some um, importance in that piece. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Uh, yeah, they recommend CrossFit. Mm -hmm. oh, no, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 Raw meat. And... So let's talk about this uh, essay that I'm sure will be the, the talk of this particular uh, issue. Uh, the Return of the Warrior. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that was... Uh, that was surprising for me. Um, I actually am quite unfamiliar with the work of 
Clastris, is that how do we say this? Yeah, it's something that's been on the sort of short reading list for a while, but I've never actually gotten around to it. And this essay, draw, this essay draws quite heavily from his work, and so a lot of it is focusing on the Yanomami. And, um, I'm just going to read a little bit. Sure, sure. <laughs> it's the year 1970. Clastris lives among the Yanomami and declares them, quote, the last free society in the world, end quote. He remarks upon their incredible flatulence, a product of the high-level <laughs> banana in their diet, which is particularly funny because last night we had a big fight about bananas. <laughs> <clears throat> I've never gotten flatulence from bananas, they've noticed. At night, Clostris is left alone in the camp with the women, for the men have gone off to raid. They attack their enemies at night and run back in the jungle to avoid the inevitable swift counterattack. The, de the dead are burned upon a pyre their bones ground to dust to be snorted. Days of leisure and laughter are punctuated by forays across the river. Canoes are full of men covered with scars. Men gather in the dirt to duel over wives with clubs. Mm -hmm. So the thesis of, the, of this piece. Yeah, so the thesis, which I think will be astounding to some, especially people who aren't familiar with Yanomami and Clastris, as I was not familiar, is, well, I guess I want to back up and say, I think almost all anarchists would say that part of what they hate about the present world, whether it's civilization or capitalism or whatever, the state, is how much our culture is based on violence and how much even, you know, the, the sort of daily functionings of the economy, the basic essentials for life necessitate enormous amounts of violence, whether it's subjecting people to work that they don't want to do or the wars or the sort of the mediated violence that we experience from buying all these consumer items and that sort of thing. And so I think almost all anarchists would say what they want, their utopia, would be peaceful, would be much more peaceful than the world that we live in now, um, even if you wouldn't be able to, you know, completely wipe out violence. And this thesis is shocking in that they, the author unapologetically idolizes, I would say, the Anamami and th argues that their extreme violence, which starts from a very early age, is what allows them to be free. And this is a world where children are violently punished. This is a world where people worship, well, no, I should say, not worship, where prestige is based on being a great warrior. And this is a world with seemingly very hard gender divisions. Mm -hmm. Very different than the... Um, yeah. Than the gatherer-hunter society of yeah. anarcho-primitivism. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll come out and say, you know, for uh, certainly for the past few years, my utopia has looked like, you know, hanging out under the shade of a fruit tree and going swimming in the creek and uh, hugging and loving everybody. Yeah, <laughs> and per perhaps having those uh, bonobo monkeys. Yeah, that's uh, great. Yeah. <laughs> Penis fencing. Yeah. That's how we'll resolve conflict. <laughs> Basically, your utopia until reading this journal looked like the pages of Fifth Estate magazine. <laughs> uh, there's a section in in uh, is it the Return of the Warrior? Yeah. yeah. Um, that I think sums it up pretty nicely. The boundaries and demarcations of territory are transgressed by the warrior. In its absence of this transgressive force, we are domesticated livestock. The warrior who raids, abducts, and scorches crosses all lines and resists all control beyond his own meaning. It is glory alone, and the prophets who direct him towards its achievement that impel him. He comes, he goes. The law he follows supersede the pettiness of the state. 
The monstrosity of techno-industrial society overcodes and overdetermines at every opportunity. Nothing threatens its hegemony, like the deterritorialization de of war. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, mostly what I like about this is that, you know, of course I'm not convinced, but I'm probably never going to get a, like, we're never going to sit down at a table and actually get to decide any, right. anything like this perfect world. Mm -hmm. And this really opens up something that I think is really important, which is the civilizing aspect of the kind of violence that we live under now, right? Our violence is not a democratic violence. Right? The only people who actually get to be violent wear blue, mm -hmm. right? They get to fucking unleash holy terror. Mm -hmm. if, if you're not wearing blue and, and, and you're violent, quote unquote, you're, you're a victim, mm -hmm. quickly. And if, you, if you're violent toward those in blue, you're going to be a victim yeah. <laughs> very, very quickly. <clears throat> it's a pacifying violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, you can sort, sort of call this a uh, redistribution of the, <laughs> the access to violence. Yeah. I mean, by the way, I would also say, before reading this, and I haven't actually read this essay yet, but, but before reading this, I, my position was always that I drew a distinction between war outside of civilization and war inside civilization sure. and and sure. but 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 basically i would say that i was against war mm -hmm. and 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 i i sort of like you know clearly i've never been a pacifist but but found a a, a sensibility from pacifism that i agreed with around this this definition of of war and and the idea that you know war is mechanization of of you know tearing apart human life and that's and you know as much as as this uh as Colossus's view of this Yamamani society talked so much about the violence, for me, I, I leave a lot of room for that because the violence is interpersonal. But I'm not sure that's yeah. actually the case, of course. Yeah. And, and that's probably a soft way to, to, to read the, the thing, but, but that, you know, I, I definitely did read it that way up till now. Yeah, and I, I should uh, say that I'm not well-read in anthropology. It's uh, not what I've been drawn to so far in my, in my explorations. Um, and so I had this sort of latent, uh, maybe unarticulated idea that, well, okay, yeah, sure, there are, um, there are primitive cultures that regularly practice violence, but violence is not so brutal. But what is being described, not only in this essay, but in a later piece by, by uh, Art Cabrera called Lessons from the Creek War, I mean, what's being described is absolutely brutal, um, and including you know, treatment of captives, uh, Scalping children very painful, yeah, very painful uh, torture to death of captives and that kind of thing. The uh, violence theme really shouldn't be a surprise to any of the readers. Uh, if you don't, if you're not aware, Atasa is in fact a uh, a war club, mm -hmm. um, and so so it's the the violence is very much on the cover of this journal, and and I'm glad actually that OBC published it in the sense that we haven't talked enough about violence in the mm -hmm. past five years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I did want to ask when, just a few minutes before we were going to record, you mentioned that Clastris is sort of, is this the sort of anthropologist of the post-left, and I was wondering what exactly that meant, because um, you know, what, what he's saying is very different from Marshall Salins or Richard Bourchelis. Yeah, I mean, you know, of course everyone's education is different and has different sparks that, that inspire it, but for me, uh, when I first read Anti-Civilization Arguments, and it referred to other texts. Clostros was on the shortlist, mm. um, and uh, Clostros was French, 
which frankly, whether we like it or not, that, that actually gave him an edge up over the Anglo Anglophone uh, anthropologists. And Claustrus is one of the few that I've read two of his books, uh -huh. uh, unlike others who I've just seen a little bit. Mm -hmm. What's the other one? The other one's translated, I, mm -hmm. I can't remember. It's been a while. Uh -huh. And so he's referred to... Well, I refer I refer to him as the as the anthropologist of the post left, mostly because like in the early '90s when I was learning about this stuff, he was one of the few things that was translated and was available. Mm -hmm. So uh, he, his publisher was the equivalent of like Autonomy Media or something. I don't think it was that, yeah. but it was like okay. you could find it at a at a bookstore in right. a way that you couldn't find, you know, maybe John Suzanne or something. Right, right. And so, but the, the I guess sort of the the main ideas that are taken from him are are what these sorts of things that hey, maybe Utopia doesn't look like. Ah, uh, right. That's that's kind of what I was getting at. Well, my impression of him that was favorable was because he lived with the people he was talking about. I see. Okay. And and so so he, is as much as I've come to the position of being hostile towards anthropology, he was a, one of the early people who, who you know, sort of post-Man uh, Man the Hunter, um, but, but only a little bit after that, you know, he lived with he lived with who he was talking about and very much took on their values. Mm -hmm. um, so he was writing from inside the values of this culture that he's, where he's not from. Mm -hmm. So that that asked the questions that were appropriate for me early in my life as a political person. And and again, he was he was referred to all the time by Ajoda. Oh, okay. In the pages yeah. of Ajoda. Yeah. So there was one other thing I wanted to say about this piece, mm -hmm. just because it struck me so much. So I guess... Um, Besides the sort of lazing about and in the shade of the fruit tree, one would hope that utopia would be a sort of state of contentment, of completeness, of peace. Peace, yeah. And you know, when you read this, you think, "Do I want this world fucking at all?" <laughs> because, because uh, the author who I should say the author is Ramon Elmani, and he writes uh, about halfway through the piece. The warrior, like Hegel's slave, is always in a state of becoming, just as he inherits nothing from the glorious acts of his fathers. With each scalp he takes, he must begin again. It does not matter how many scalps a warrior has hanging on the walls of his hut. Once he stops taking scalps, his glory is at an end. The quest and hunger for prestige is a compulsion. Clastris, who correctly places the warrior in an existential context, writes, quote, The warrior is in essence condemned to forging ahead, end quote. He never has enough scalps. His bloodlust is never quenched. The warrior is thus paradoxically a quintessentially modern figure. He is always dissatisfied and restless. He is a neurotic. He is formed and conditioned by conflicted forces, a soul that yearns for glory but is dependent on a society to recognize and reward it. I mean, you could change a small number of words there and mm -hmm. talk about the quintessential capitalist. No matter how much money he makes, yeah. it's never enough. And he, so he's never actually able to enjoy the fruits of his labor, so isn't capitalism so stupid, even for the people who yeah. succeed? Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what the wonder what the thought process was for the author in, in making this argument. I mean... Yeah, um... They leave it. I, I said that was at the middle. That was actually toward the end. They leave it kind of uh, of open ended. I mean, they sort of just present the figures, and you know, it's up to you to say what to do. Because you know, I think you could very easily read this and then tie it back to saying, and therefore humans will never be happy, and they will always be violent, and life is always going to suck. I mean, you could draw that conclusion very easily. So, and sort of, so what's the point of even you know, resisting society? Well, also, I, I, and I think this is a fair point. This is very clearly a society 
in the way that individualist anarchists who oppose society right. would sort of be yeah. opposed to. Yeah, definitely strong value systems that yeah. the individual is expected to adhere to. I mean, it's not like, you know, not just adhere to, they're beaten into yeah. that, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're violently enforced as yeah. part of the mm -hmm. the lesson being taught. Right. Yeah. Is there anything else you wanted to say about this piece? And the, the Right at the end, I like, we must refuse to shy away from the importance of violence and the creation of community. We must acknowledge, in fact, that violence alone, properly understood, is the only means to achieve the kind of society we desire. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty bold assertion. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> the only way to be free is for everyone to have a gun at their hip. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting to think of whether or not guns in, the, in this context are actually relevant because, like, the idea of everybody being scarred Right. And, and being warriors in that sense of the term is a lot different than people just being dead in sure, child and sure. bodies. Mm -hmm. Like, sure, of course, if you're going to have physical conflict all the time, people are going to get hurt, right? perhaps fatally. But that is a different... I mean, I mean, this, this is the argument I always make when I talk about war. Like, when, when one set of people are gunning down another set of people and calling that war and calling themselves warriors, to me, that's a very different sure. phenomenon then, than what we're talking about here, which, yes, beating people with clubs is... Painful, mm -hmm. but it's not that. I mean, just phenomenologically, it's totally different. When you, I mean, you're face to face with someone. Yeah. There's emotions are going to be very different from. I mean, now we have people killing with drones, right? And yeah. they're sitting in a little box somewhere, high off their ass, and you know, playing a video game. Well, I want to I want to back up and uh, talk about Jacoby's piece mm. because the the thing that we haven't talked we haven't mentioned yet about Jacoby's piece which is actually a very solid piece surprisingly so because I found him to be um, sort of a bore in, in, <laughs> in what he's written before I apologize for being honest um, uh, but uh, but alongside th so this piece is actually a very solid piece it really does tell from a first person perspective <coughs> um, uh, sort of Jacoby's or both his relationship with Kaczynski himself and sort of the introductions that sort of were made on his behalf by Kaczynski to these uh, to the eco-extremist movement. So Jacoby, and I think this is worth teasing out a little bit, he, he has created a position um, that was a shared position for a while called Wildism. Uh, so this was a position that was shared with the UR, the ultimate uh, regression. Ultimate yeah. reductive. Reductive, yeah. And, um, and that this position sort of is a distinct position from the eco-extremists of the ITS variety. And um, and I think this is interesting because, you know, Jacoby has sort of been trying to create an, a non-primitivist primitivism for a couple years now. And, um, uh, and, and so it's interesting that he fell into these sets of people. You know, he's a very young American college student. But, um, uh, but you know, he's incredibly articulate and, and definitely has the words. In the past, a lot of what his language was around um, like Jacoby three years ago was publishing Foreman, like recent pieces right. by Foreman, right. and was really trying to, he was sort of calling his perspective a conservationist perspective. Yeah, which I always found very strange. Very strange. Yeah. It's, it, or it would be very strange if he wasn't 21 years old, right? But but the the, 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 the sense that, that you, 
you know, if, if you're reading radical green material that you're not recognizing that there already are sort of slices and positions and that foremen and the conservationists represent sort of like the right wing of the green movement to some greater or lesser extent. Yeah, yeah. And, and so then to go from there to a, a quote-unquote wildest position, I, I, I just think it's very interesting. And this piece does sort of track that movement at least a little bit. Yeah, I think he does a very good job with... Um giving especially the unfamiliar reader a sort of taxonomy of the possible positions or the existing positions. Mm -hmm. And I do want to make clear, I don't know if you were implying this or not, that he makes it clear that he moved away from the ultimo reducto position, yes, which right. was which was very Kaczynski and avowedly Kaczynski. Yeah. And he does give the bit of history I or recent history that I didn't know, which is that Kaczynski is very much aware of the eco extremists, which of course makes sense. Yes. But he has disavowed them yes. very flatly, and I think mainly from a sort of tactical perspective. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, right. I mean, if, if he believes that a revolution is the only thing that's going to save the world. Which he still seems to. And also, a, a crucial part of his position is that we have to be opportunists. We have to wait for the crisis moment in glo techno-global society, whereas that's not at all where the eco-extremists are coming yeah. from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think the important thing is that the wildest position that Jacoby is espousing, he places basically flat in the middle mm -hmm. between ITS and mm -hmm. the Kaczynski's position, which I don't exactly know. <laughs> like, I don't understand exact enough of this to be like, what would flat in the middle look like? You, yeah. you beat people with bats rather than shoot them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think one of the weaknesses of the piece, and it might just be that he thought it was outside the scope or was inappropriate <laughs> because it's not his thing or it's it's about you know people other than him is that he leaves you wondering exactly what it means because it's you get this idea that it's sort of well what's a way to share most of the values but also still be in the world rather than you know live a, a complete sort of criminal life and you think okay well you know, what does that look like i guess outside of publishing or, yeah. or something like that um, and, and by the way, for anyone who's interested in learning more about uh, Jacoby's position here, he uh, publishes a, a, yes, a something called Hunter Gatherer, which is very strange to call your periodical Hunter Gatherer because he lives in Raleigh, North Carolina, which is also the home, uh, or near Raleigh, North Carolina, Carborough, which is actually where he lives, or in that area. And that's <laughs> also where. Docs here. <laughs> well, I mean, he's very poly he's a public yeah, 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 personality, yeah, yeah, so sure. I'm not. I don't feel like I'm sure, unfair. Sure, sure. But that's also the home of uh, Crime Think. Oh. And Crime yeah. Think, if for those of you who don't know, did a publication called Hunter Gatherer. Oh, shit. <laughs> so, so it, to me, it's, it's just this, the, 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 yeah. the lack of history. And, you know, it, I mean, whatever. I guess I'm just going to run into it more and more as I get older. But, like, it's very strange to be, like, living in the town with the people who did a publication that you're not calling the same thing, but it's totally different. It, I wouldn't be surprised if he's almost totally unfamiliar with the crime thing oeuvre, though, right? He, yes and no. I mean, okay. yeah. the social scene isn't that big, but... Sure. There, there seems to be a bit of a like a generational For gap sure. almost. Yeah, yeah. of course. Um, anyways, uh, what's next? Well, so the sort of uh, titular piece is Atasa, Lessons of the Creek War, which is also by Abe Cabrera, um, who I think it's fair to say is the primary He's editor. He's the editor, yeah. yeah. Primary editor. And it tells, you know, this, this sort of sad story of of how the Creek people were initially encroached upon, and there started to be a sort of level of soft assimilation happening. They were getting into the 
market economy with white um, people with mm -hmm. white people mm -hmm. and getting into the market economy started to not only change their lifestyle but also degrade their environment because they started uh, hunting deer skin for the market economy depopulating the deer and then they reached this sort of crisis moment where a sort of subsection of the creek societies tried to sort of go back to the old ways and it, it's it was funny to me to think how quickly right that the old ways become old and then there's this traditionalist movement and you, you or at least I, I tend to think well you know these people were already living a sort of traditional semi-traditional way of life but even then they must have been able to feel the difference and see what was happening so much and it led to a war of resistance which they had one major victory and then ended up just getting rolled by a sort of... Um, by Andrew Jackson. By Andrew Jackson, one of <laughs> oh, history's yeah. weirdest figures, for sure. And uh, who allied with Cherokees, and then you know, they get wiped out, as you might expect. How's the peace? <clears throat> it's uh, definitely stronger than the peace about Little Bighorn. Mm -hmm. um, it does a much better job of kind of laying out what happened so that you can actually, like extrapolate with the author the lessons to be learned mm -hmm. um it goes into um the culture of the red sticks like as a culture of resistance it was really interesting they completely re resisted against the the mainstream of their own culture right basically yeah um to the point of murdering chiefs who wanted to cooperate with white people oh wow yeah. and you know disappearing into the forest to form new communities um, <laughs> more traditional communities yeah not just murder them but uh, murder them in a, an especially cruel way where they sort of said let's have a meeting and they all sat down together and then they just took them out wow. um, and so again to take it back to the uh, the bit about the Yanomami you think there's not really room for heroes here because what's and and I think that is a good thing, but you know what happens here besides the sort of the ruthless murdering of the chiefs in lieu of any sort of discussion, I guess. Um, there's also a a bit about how when the red sticks, the red sticks are this this traditionalist uh, war making faction of the creek. When they take, as Will alluded to earlier, when they have their victory. I mean, what happens to the captives is just awful, right? Um, just a, a kind of a brutal torture murder, and um, Art, or Abe Cabrera, Art Cabrera, you know, same person, uh, he talks about how this, what looks gratuitous, and he calls it, uh, far from being acts of gratuitous or extraordinary violence, what occurred at Fort Mims, this brutal takedown of the captives, was well within the cultural and spiritual logic of traditional Creek culture. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's no room for the sort of um, peace-loving... Uh, Not a lot of hippies in this journal. Yeah. No, yeah. no hippies in this journal, yeah. no. <laughs> the image of the, the uncivilized primitive is not what some people would like it to be <laughs> at all. Uh, yeah. Yeah, the, the attack on Fort Mims is really... It, they, it's very detailed in the piece, and it's, it is brutal. Yeah. The children being scalped. Pregnant women cut open their babies laid next to them. Yeah. Like, fucking brutal. And then the place was burned down. No prisoners. No prisoners. <laughs> and uh, what are, so we're sort of wrapping up, we're getting towards the end of our time. Uh, are there any other pieces that are worth mentioning? This is a almost a 200 page 
journal. A lot of oh, you, the you'll be able to find at littleblackcart.com. Translate. So there's two. There's actually two pieces by uh, someone named Lunas de Abril. Okay. Um, that are pretty indicative of how the um, translated pieces in the book or in the journal uh, go. They're very over the top and sort of bombastic. Odes and, to violence. Or yeah, and they're, they're mm. love poems to violence. Mm. Um, there's one, the first one in the in the in the journal is called Size. Uh, the first one by the author is called Size, and it's basically about a couple going out, dynamiting a place, and then going off into the woods to fuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Which, I'm cool. Yeah. Um, and then the other one, something about mountains, and it's toward the end. Speak, let, let, let uh, the person that thinks that flipping pages sounds good in the microphone. <laughs> but I, 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 was, <laughs> I was gonna change the subject. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's fine. Um, but well, one of the other pieces that I definitely think deserves to get highlighted is um, one called Indiscriminate Anarchists. Mm. And part of what is being talked about here, so one of, one of the assertions you could say being made by Atasa is that the North American anarchist milieu, broadly, uh, I don't know about outside of the States, I wouldn't be surprised if that's happening as well, there, there's been a condemnation coming from certain sections of uh, the eco-extremists' adherence to indiscriminately attacking, which we could define as attacks that are not based on people that we maybe could all agree are our enemies or people who we have it coming in some way, but that uh, built in to the design of the attack is the high possibility or even the intention that random passers-by will be affected. And part of what I see Atasa trying to do here is say, actually, if you look at anarchist history, this has been happening for a long time. This so is almost since the word right. came in vogue. Mm-hmm. And the indiscriminate anarchist piece even makes the assertion the original, or, hmm, the original modern terrorist is the anarchist, yeah. based on what they were doing. And you you see what ends up happening. It's a, it's a sort of a bullet point history is that that split starts to emerge as time goes on to the point that the, I guess you could say, civil anarchists... Or the social anarchists. Social mm-hmm. anarchists turn on mm-hmm. the uh, indiscriminately attacking anarchists and even help to bring them down. Yeah. That was very interesting for me. Almost all of it was new. And I, yeah, I definitely recommend... Um, I mean, this piece alone, I think, makes it very interesting to anarchists. Yeah. I mean, that's actually the, perhaps the question we can end on, which is a big question. Is this an anarchist journal? No. I really? I, it dep- if, if anarchist journal means espousing some sort of anarchist position, I would say no. If it means something that anarchists should care about, if they want to understand the present moment and be weighing in and be actively participating, then I'd say yes. I agree. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't I, say it differently. I, 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 like in your own words. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't think it's an anarchist oh, you journal. Um, but I do think it's important for anarchists to engage with it. I think that even if you come out of it completely repulsed or or whatever, because I I know people that will that be. will be the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're challenging ideas. And I think that that's always important. Hmm. Yeah, I think I probably think that this is an anarchist journal. 
it's definitely trying to expand the definition of what anarchism is. But I think that that that, that argument is long overdue. I mean, I mean, clearly, I am biased <laughs> in that I, I myself, you know, want to expand the the palette of of the anarchists. But I think that this this idea of indiscriminate anarchism this is highly compelling to me, and I think that the the way in which ITS denounced anarchism. It sounds familiar. It sounds like something that I or one of my friends would, would have said about anarchism and about how sort of passive and soft and not not paying attention to something that's kind of important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess part of what makes that hard for me to swallow is that the eco-extremists have not been calling themselves anarchists. They've been specifically saying that they're But they clearly not. come out of the milieu, sure, and the way in sure. which they said that they're not anarchists is is a way in which I would have said that I'm not an anarchist. Sure. In other words, I don't want to be chained by the morally, moralizing cowling of, of anarchists. Mm -hmm. And so then, so if, if I'm going to have to sort of listen to these whiners all the time, well then, fuck it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that to yeah. me is what they said when they said that we're not anarchists. Mm -hmm. They basically said, you sound like a bunch of brats. Mm -hmm. Well, also in that, that it, it's espousing an antisocial perspective. Right. If anarchism means to you I need to care about seven billion strangers, yeah. or anarchism means to you we're going to unite under one big world with one big set of values, then yeah. Yeah, and, and this is one of the reasons why the anarchists in North America that have been so hostile to Atasa, that what they, they're hostile to that critique and they're just not—they're not being fair. They're—they're they're basically they're, they're basically just calling them moralists or saying that they're the, they're the new ISIS, rather than saying that they don't want to uh, that they don't that that I if I were a social anarchist and, and, and were to say I think that an anti-social anarchist position is unattractive or unappealing, that actually makes what what the ITS is doing seem like a reasonable, disagreeable but but reasonable position, and that's of course not at all what's happening. There actually is some a uh, couple of instances of of like tips of the hat to ISIS in in oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's there's one reference to to um, how fluid their organizational structure mm -hmm. is, and that that is a good idea for mm -hmm. a good model for eco extremists, mm -hmm. which is fair. <laughs> fair. fair it is fair. <laughs> Just. That, and that association is, sure. is brutal. <laughs> some, some people haven't shed all their moralism to yeah. recognize that. <laughs> oh I mean, honestly, the idea of taking a, uh, a two-track and doing donuts in the middle of an intersection, that's pretty cool. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well... Well, actually, I, I do want to... Oh, okay. Yeah, just a parting thought. I guess I would say, um, I've said this before, on the show, I'm going to say it again, I'm going to try to say it in the best and most thorough way because I thought about more. Um, for those who don't even want to read this book, or for those who read it and say, that's disgusting, my question to that person is, are you a complete pacifist and someone who thinks the only way to the anarchism that they would like to see is a sort of principled pacifism that consists entirely of just spreading the word, dropping out, withdrawing from the economy, you know, that sort of thing. If so, I would say, good for you, you have a completely consistent position and your disagreement is based in solid thinking. If you are anything less than total pacifist, if you are advocating for an insurrection, if you are or advocating... Or Spanish Civil War style, or 
Spanish Civil War, Revolutionary Movement, um, Industrial Sabotage. If you are advocating, as I know some who really disagree with this position have, of some sort of attack the grid and you know, make all the lights go out position, you are advocating for a form of indiscriminate attack because there are absolutely going to be loads and loads of people who get hurt by your actions. I mean, attacking the grid would cause death on an enormous scale. And if you say all of that is fine because we have to go through blood and fire to get through to the other side, I would say, okay, that's a position I understand. It's one that I have sympathy for. But that is not so far removed from what is being articulated by eco-extremism, except that maybe you are more optimistic than they are about getting to the point that you'd like to get to. But you, are, you have no less sort of mental blood on your hands based on your ideas than these people do, except that they are very blunt about it, and so maybe you're just pissed off by an attitude difference. Do you have any last words? Yeah, I think I think that's actually a pretty good point. They're brash. Yeah. And in your face, and they don't care about your feelings. <laughs> they're, the, they're the punk rockers. <laughs> they, they are. <laughs> and I, but I think that's important to their position. It's kind of a, a little key piece to it, and and but I think that is part of what rubs people wrong. Mm -hmm. They're they're very very dismissive of you if you don't agree with them. Well, just to end this episode, and thank you very much for joining us. You can always find these podcasts at thebrilliant.org. You can email us at uh, thebrilliant at thebrilliant.org. And I, as my last words, I'm, I'm just going to um, say a word that we amazingly have not said during this entire episode, but is an important part of sort of the ITS story. And we'll end the episode with this word, and that is nihilism. <laughs>